Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Perfectionism. It's something that most of us have struggled with in one way, shape, or form. Maybe it doesn't affect you in every realm of life, but most of us have at least one or two areas where we really want to be stellar. And sometimes that drive to be stellar can cause us to veer into perfectionism. What's going on with perfectionism? How did we learn it? What's beneath it? What does it mean to be perfect or to think we can try to be perfect? And how might social media impact our desire to present the perfectly curated life in multiple posts across multiple platforms every day? To delve into this topic, psychologist Dr. Jeffrey S. Reber, author of The Paradox of Perfection, How Embracing Our Imperfection Perfects Us, joins me today. Dr. Reber is chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of West Georgia, a therapist and the principal founder of Relational Counseling and Consulting Services. He is a leader in the field of relational psychology, which treats relationships as fundamental to our being, our knowing, and our morality. Dr. Reber has produced more than three dozen scholarly publications informed by this relational psychological perspective, and he has given dozens of presentations on relational psychology across the continent. He has successfully implemented his unique approach to relationships in the classroom, in organizational administration and leadership, and in his psychotherapy practice. Dr. Reber is the editor of the journal Issues in Religion and Psychotherapy, and he sits on the editorial boards of four academic peer-review publication outlets. Dr. Reber's books specialize in treating growing societal issues and concerns, like narcissism and perfectionism, from a relational perspective that interfaces faith and psychology. Dr. Reber, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your time today, and this is such an excellent topic for my listeners because I think many of us struggle with this notion of perfectionism. It's something that is a tension, I think, that many of us experience because we want to live lives of excellence, and we want to be driven, and we want to pursue our goals and dreams, and we don't want to settle for anything mediocre in life. At the same time, sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves in so many different realms of life. How do you help people find that balance between being too perfectionistic, yet still, of course, wanting to embrace a life that looks to excellence in whatever we do? Well, I think the first step is we have to learn another language. If you only speak English and you encounter someone from Germany, you're not going to be able to communicate with them. You're not going to be able to help them if they're in your country visiting and need to find their way to a restaurant, for example. And if we only speak the language of perfectionism, the language of flawlessness, then we don't have a capacity to shift to a different language. So we really have to, I think, do a little work, and we have to really reflect on and do some work on developing an alternative language. Mm. 
And you mentioned excellence. One of the, the alternative languages that the Greek philosophers like Plato um, talked quite a bit about was we can be excellent um, without achieving the ideal of flawlessness. And if we could take the pressure off ourselves to be flawless and focus on approximating the ideal, but not, not with a d- demand to achieve it, then maybe we can become really good at what we're doing without all that extra burden of feeling horrible when we fall a little bit short of perfection. So I think I mentioned in the book that, you know, Michael Phelps is a, an excellent swimmer, a most excellent swimmer, certainly more excellent a swimmer than I am. And that comes from his practice and his work ethic and all the things he's done to, to perform that well. And that is a kind of perfection we might focus on if we take Plato seriously, rather than saying, yeah, Michael Phelps is really excellent, but he's not flawless. He does make mistakes. And and that's just going too far. That's the language of perfectionism rather than the language of excellence. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, excellence has its own challenges. I mean, if you go with excellence, then you have a lot of upward and downward social comparison. Mm-hmm. What we mean by that is you look to others who are more excellent than you and you feel sometimes bad about right. yourself. Or you look to those who are doing worse than you and you might be lifted up in a kind of arrogance or pride. So that that language of perfection is available. It has its all all languages of perfection have their own mm-hmm. challenges. Um, the challenges with excellence are comparison with others. The challenge of flawlessness is you can never feel quite fully good about your achievements. Right. Well, and then the social comparison, and I it, I think it makes sense to speak to it just a bit because of the social media component. And you may have come across the study as well, but I was looking at some comparison research that showed that with social media whether we're doing upward or downward comparison, are always related to feeling worse. Whereas actually in face-to-face comparison, it plays out more like you'd think. If I'm doing an upward comparison and I see someone who looks better than me or dresses cuter than me, then I'm going to feel worse. But if I'm downward comparing and I feel like I'm coming up on top, I feel better. Isn't that interesting though that in the digital space, it doesn't matter what kind of comparing we're doing, we're going to feel worse. Yeah, I think I think that's because the language of perfectionism that is flawlessness really does dominate social right. media. People aren't able to do it, but they're trying to post really the most flattering images and stories of their lives. So it's rarely, you know, here's how I screwed up today. Right. It's more here's this amazing thing I did, this amazing, you know, meal I made or the amazing trip I took and so we're really presenting ourselves in an idealized light mm-hmm. with social media. So it ends up always being upward social comparison. There's very little downward social comparison a, a, a viewer of a social media platform can do because everyone seems to have their life in just perfect harmony. Right. Yeah, they're calling it the highlight reel is how I've heard it put. That we Yeah, it's always exactly. the highlight reel. <laughs> Never the down and dirty portions of the day. <laughs> You know, one of the things we're we're starting to germinate is uh, we call it Weakness Wednesdays, which is let's let's have at least one day on social media where we share some of our failings, mm. where we share some of our less uh, desirable images and stories, so people can see that there are people like you who are struggling, who fall short, um, and and they're okay. <laughs> they're not. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. 
I love that, first of all. And when we finish up, we'll have to let my listeners know where to follow you on social media so they can participate in Weakness Wednesdays. That's fantastic. And it's it's really, it's interesting that we have this juxtaposition of so much emphasis on authenticity and vulnerability, all the Brene Brown stuff is huge on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, you're right. We're still we're claiming we need to be vulnerable. We're looking at the research that shows that we live more authentic lives and we feel better and we live more realistically. And then at the same time, we're put right up against, as we were saying, the highlight reel after highlight reel and everyone is bodied down and perfect and they have the three gorgeous children and they're on their vacation in Cabo and everything is just so... And it's filtered, of course. There's what, you don't like your photo? Put the perfect filter on it. And so it's this really interesting space we're in right now. It really is. I mean, I've almost stopped reading Christmas cards because they just are so overwhelmingly glowing, yeah. uh, you know, about the year that these people have had that I feel like I must really be awful with, you know, everything I'm doing. <laughs> but I think what I would say about vulnerability, because that's really at the heart of this, perfectionism is a vulnerability blocker. It just, it's a blockade against vulnerability. Yeah. Because we don't want to show weakness. We don't want to show that we are falling short. And yet, you know, I'm a therapist. My entire stock and trade is based on people opening up about weakness. It's based on people admitting, talking about where they fall short and how they feel down um, about that. And we know from all the research on therapy that the most powerful change agent in the therapeutic process is the relationship between therapist and client, what we call a therapeutic alliance. And that alliance happens because there's vulnerability and there's trust, there's opening up about weakness, and a person you do that with is supportive of you in that and encouraging of you in that, and that provides such a, a bond between the therapist and the client. Well, the same thing's true of marriage, it's true of parenting, it's true of friendships, it's even true of workplace relationships, that if we're going to be close to each other, we can't walk around like little atoms of flawlessness mm. because there's really no entry point for relationship there. My my relationship with my wife is much closer because of the times we have failed or even hurt mm. each other. And we've come back to each other and acknowledged that in a vulnerable way and practiced reconciliation together. So I'm, I'm, I'm a relational psychologist, and that means to me the relationship is as important as the individuals. And I see relationships suffering because perfectionism and the pursuit of flawlessness disallows the weakness that actually brings people together. That is so profound, and it's just beautifully stated. And I think we can all look over our lives, and I think if we're honest, those times when we may have felt alienated from one another are probably the times that we have been unwilling to be more real with each other and be vulnerable and disclose some stuff. And maybe we had our reasons. You know, I, maybe I don't want to talk about it because it yeah. feels so overwhelming that I don't think anyone can do anything about it anyway. So I just won't discuss it. It's not that we're always trying to even be perfectionistic in our appearance or presentation. Sometimes we just don't even know how to manage the feelings ourselves. So it's, it seems too daunting to share them. But I do think that you're absolutely right. That is, whether we intend to or not, we're creating a barrier. And I think it also it also segues into another content area that you talk about in the book is that sometimes we try to be perfect in an effort to avoid feeling regret, 
because if I don't mess up, then I don't have to feel regret. And then of course, the other very profound emotion that we've all felt to some degree, it's part of the human condition, is shame. So we think if I can just achieve this ideal version of myself, I'll never have to feel any shame and no regret. And so can you speak a little more about that? Yeah, I I believe this is actually the core of the pursuit of flawlessness. I, I don't think it's, I want to be this ideal as much as it is, I don't want to make mistakes that cause other people to suffer. The idea of something I have done, hurting another person, especially my own child or my spouse or a good friend, this is heartbreaking. And people can become so afraid of what their actions might do to hurt others that they won't Mm -hmm. act. They become frozen. Um, I I tell some of uh, people I share this book with about a woman who already had some symptoms of OCD a little bit, but when she had her her child, when she had a baby, it just kicked into hyperdrive. And she now wipes down her entire house with wipes, you know, to clean the house up. She washes her hands 22 or three times in a half hour period. So her knuckles are breaking with, you know, open with bleeding and dry skin. She's doing horrible things to herself. And it's all driven by if I don't do everything right, my child might get sick and my child might die or have some other terrible physical consequence and it'll be my fault. So people are not trying to be perfect just to show off flawlessness. I don't think that's really the case at all. I think they're very, very scared that if they make a mistake and someone's injured by it or suffers from it, that they won't ever be able to live with themselves Mm -hmm. again. And that's the deep shame. The deep shame is making a mistake that causes someone to suffer and not being able to go back in time and do it. We can't change our history. So we end up feeling always regretful and full of shame in the present. And then we look at the future and say, well, I better never make another mistake or I'm just going to repeat this same shame cycle I'm in now. Yeah. And especially like you said, in the context of parenting, where there is this little vulnerable creature that God has entrusted you with and you think, okay, I can't let yeah. allow this, this innocent baby to suffer because I'm flawed and I'm imperfect. So I better bring my A game every day, all day. Absolutely. I, I used to, when I, we had our first uh, child, I have four children, but our, our firstborn, you know, you're sure. most sort of fearful <laughs> about all the things that could go wrong. And I would, I remember many nights, those first few months, I would go into her room and I would put my hand in front of her mouth to make sure I could feel breath and check and make sure she was not bound up too tight in her blankets or sleeping on the wrong side. You know, all these worries I had about SIDS Mm -hmm. and other things. I was not sleeping because I was trying so hard to make sure she was safe. And sometimes I woke her up in my efforts to keep her from from anything happening. And that created a whole other set of problems because she wouldn't go to sleep (laughs) after that. And my wife would get up and say, what are you doing in the bedroom? Well, I'm trying to make sure she's breathing. And she's like, well, now she's awake. She's breathing fine because she's (laughs) crying. And, you know, so we we often, the thing about uh, perfectionism that I think is interesting is it becomes its own source of flaws and mistakes that we wish we didn't, you know, commit. Um, in fact, the mother who has these OCD symptoms says she she knows that she's making her child's life right. worse by all the things she's trying to do to protect her child, but she can't find a way to stop it. Well, and that's so tragic because 
it's coming from this place of love and wanting to protect her child, and yet it's alienating her child from her. Her relationship with her OCD, I'm sure, is much more prominent in her life than her relationship with her child. She's missing out on connecting and building into her child and mothering. So, yeah, I mean, just absolutely tragic. Yeah, that's exactly the point, that as we pursue flawlessness, it becomes our primary relationship object. And then other people fall into second, third, fourth, fifth place. And so it really does disable the intimacy and bonds that we need to have healthy, meaningful relationships. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen, that's D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows, Will and Grace, my brand new fave, God Friended Me, and of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. You also speak in the book, you talk about perfectionism in marriage, how perfectionism can get in there. You share a story about a woman you call Kathy. The dynamic of perfectionism in their marriage actually caused her to fall out of love with her husband. So it was, again, an unintended consequence of trying to be the perfect wife and have the perfect marriage. And then all of a sudden, the love is completely gone. Yeah, she was so fluent in the language of perfectionism as flawlessness that she felt like she couldn't love her husband until he made himself worthy of the love, which meant he stopped making mistakes. Mm -hmm. So her, her inability to love him would have been eternal. I mean, he would never be able to live up to all of those expectations that she had. So she went about seven years, she says, where she just fell out of love because he wasn't able to be the kind of man she felt she deserved. Now, she's not paying a lot of attention to her own flaws in her story, <laughs> which is interesting and problematic. But it was such a, an unleveling of the marriage. In other words, she put herself in a high position, a position of, I deserve better. And she put him in this low position of, you're always blowing it. You're always falling short. And that is a recipe for a marriage oh to end, to fail. And so what is needed in that case, uh, in all cases where we become unlevel with our spouse, whether it's because we expect too much of them or we think we're more attractive and they're less or we make the money and they don't, whatever makes us unlevel, we have to learn a new language of marriage than flawlessness. And I think the language that really works best in marriage is a language of reconciliation and even redemption. So if I am feeling better than my spouse, that's something I need to go and tell my spouse I'm sorry for. That's a, a marital sin, mm-hmm. we could say, where I am putting mm-hmm. my pride on a pedestal and putting my spouse down in relation right. to me. And the same thing is true if I'm the spouse who's in despair and feel I'm unacceptable and, and not worthy or good. I am also creating an unlevel relationship with my spouse for which I need to repent and go to my spouse and say, I'm sorry, I've been treating you as better than me, or I've been treating you as worse than me. And for that, I need to I need to reconcile with you. I need to talk through that. And we both need to come to a place where we admit and acknowledge that when it comes to flawlessness, we're even right. before it, meaning we're all falling short of it. No one's achieving it. So we really should be more level and balanced 
than we than we are when we're lifted in pride or we're lowered down in despair. Well, and the word that kept coming to mind as you were talking was entitlement. So Kathy got into a place of, that she was entitled to this perfect marriage and this perfect husband. And then I remember from the book as well, she then held her husband responsible for her happiness such that you're not perfect and that's why I'm no longer happy. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think we can not only idealize ourselves and other people, but we can idealize mm-hmm. relationships. We can tell ourselves that we should be having a perfect marriage. And worse than that, we can say that's a sign of true mm-hmm. love. I, I have met with people like, usually they're a little older, maybe they've been married a long time, and um, they will say, you know, my wife and I have never had yeah. a fight. We've never raised our voices with each other. And they're thinking that's something to be proud of. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are you in a right. real relationship? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? but, but a lot of people hear that and they take it to heart if they're perfectionists and they think, oh gosh, a truly perfect marriage is one in which we don't ever fight and we don't have conflict and we don't raise our voices. And then they start to think, well, maybe I'm not really in a true love marriage. I mean, if it was true love, we'd be like that couple right. that doesn't fight. So then they feel like their marriage is falling short of an ideal. And some people, like Kathy, they're like, well, then I shouldn't stay Mm -hmm. in the marriage. I need to find someone with whom I can have the ideal, someone I won't get into these fights with. I won't raise my voice. They won't let me down. And so they keep looking for, in a partner, an ideal relationship that simply cannot be achieved. And I wonder, over the years of your practice, have you seen some of this happening more, again, in light of where we are as a culture where we do have these expectations for perfection. And again, everyone's posting their shiny, perfectly happy marriage pictures. Do you see that this is a trend that's happening more? Or is it something that has probably always been with us to some degree? I think it's always been with us, but we are we are certainly exposed now more than ever to comparisons with other marriages mm-hmm. and relationships through social media, mm-hmm. especially. And people are open more. So, you know, friends talk with their friends who are married and about their marriages and how they're going. And so there's a lot more public discussion about what a marriage is, how it should be. And in those discussions, a language of perfectionism can just, you know, be right there and spoken very loudly, I think, in cases. I will say that um, in my practice, I see it more and more. I see more people coming in, couples coming in where they're not even with each other. One is lifted up, Mm -hmm. one is lowered down. And I see them speaking to an ideal marriage that they don't have as if it's possible, as if it's something they should be able to achieve if their love is true. Or if they can't achieve it, then they need to be in different relationships. So I do do think it's at least talked about more. I think it's in people's Mm -hmm. heads more. And part of that is because of the social media we mentioned. And part of that is because we just don't know another language for perfection. We have to find another way. And I love that you keep reiterating the notion of language. As I said earlier, it's just so powerful. And if, like you said, if we we can't speak German, if we don't have the words and the vocabulary, and we can't speak real life and real love and real intimacy, because by the way, when you talk about that couple that's never fought, I'm thinking, well, you've never been truly intimate then because you've you've been disingenuous. Now, maybe you did it again for the right reasons. You didn't want to make a big deal about something or you didn't want to have that tension in your marriage, but better to have tension and make a big deal about something every once in a while and actually know the person you're married to. Yes. Yeah. I I think I would prefer 
knowing the person in all their facets, good, bad, ugly, in between, to living an idealized marriage. I would rather have the real person, and I'd rather have the vulnerability between us that's manifest when we make mistakes with each other. And I'd rather have the redemption that comes when we can go to each other and say, I'm sorry. You know, one of the ways I've tried to help people overcome the the language of perfection is to go to a person and say, I have made a huge mistake. I am so, so sorry for that. I hope you can forgive me. When a child sees a parent do that, it is such an alternative language to, I'm the mom, I'm the dad, I'm right, I know what you should do, don't don't talk back to me, I don't make mistakes, you're the child, you're the right. one who makes mistakes. You know, like, when we get in that unlevel relationship with our children and we don't acknowledge to them that we sin as our, in our parenting, that we make parenting sins and mistakes, then our children don't have any message or, or model from us about what to do when they make a mistake mm-hmm. or do something wrong. But if we go to our children or to our spouse and we, we re- apologize, we're sincere, we seek forgiveness, we acknowledge that we're imperfect, we're vulnerable, then we model what we want them to, to see as an alternative language we can practice. Yeah, and I love that. I love the idea of bringing the fullness of your humanity that that involves being imperfect and making mistakes, but that's not the end of the story. As you keep saying, the redemption and and the idea that this we're all doing life together and we're all going to screw up and that is perfectly fine, actually. Talk about perfectionism. It's perfectly fine to screw up as long as we then make amends <laughs> and talk to someone and say, I'm so sorry that that's happened, whether it's our kid, whether it's our spouse, whether it's a family member, friend, that's where we're able to, like you're saying, go to a deeper level level of intimacy because we've been willing to be vulnerable, admit it, and say, well, how can I make this better? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, the chair of my department, so I, I work with about oh, two or three dozen employees at any one time, all of them psychologists, <laughs> by the way, so we should all know how to do this well, but right. it's often not that's the okay. case. Someone once said that psychologists study what they struggle with, and so that's probably true. I, I have to admit, I am I do struggle with perfectionism, <laughs> so that's that's an important self-disclosure, yeah. I think. Um, but, you know, what, I, what I've said to them multiple times, because we're, we're in a perfectionistic culture and workplace where if you make a mistake um, with an implicit bias, for example, racism, sexism, something like that, ageism, there's almost no uh, tolerance for that whatsoever by the people around you, by students, by the workplace. And so I've tried to help my, my faculty and employees understand that you're going to hurt each other's feelings. You're going to say things in class that students will be offended by. And it's not a question of, can you stop doing that? Because you can't because that would be the ideal of flawlessness. It's a question of what do you do mm-hmm. after it happens? When you're the one being offended, what do you do? Do you just get mad at the person for them not being flawless? Or do you go to that person and say, hey, you offended me, and I want to talk about that and process that? That's hard to do. Yeah. That's vulnerable. But it allows for that redemption to happen. But I'm afraid that perfectionism blocks those opportunities because we're almost in a a gotcha oh, yeah. culture where it's like we're looking we're looking to catch people making mistakes and hold them accountable yeah. when I want to say yes mistakes are a regular part of any relationship right. we all make them and it's how we how we act afterwards what we do to find each other 
you know, I was so impressed when in, it was in 1997 when Bill Clinton, as president, apologized to the families of men in Tuskegee who underwent the syphilis study the mm-hmm. government conducted from 1930 to 1970. And there were horrible ethics violations in that research where people were allowed to suffer from syphilis without treatment. And he, he stood up, and I just appreciated that he said, we have right. done wrong. The government did your families wrong. I am apologizing on behalf of all of the government and me personally for what was, ha- what was done. The people didn't just go off in, in rage. What they did was it allowed for some re- reconciliation mm-hmm. and redemption. They were crying tears of finally, finally someone has come to right. say they're sorry. So I think it, the, the, one of the big components of an alternative language of perfection we can learn is going to each other after we've made mistakes and finding opportunities to reconcile and redeem the relationship. And again, I just love the idea of having the tools. Language is a tool. And once I get those tools, then we can start practicing them. And it is uncomfortable and it is vulnerable and we're not used to doing it really. And especially in this day and age where it does seem to be more of a gotcha culture where people are just looking for people to screw up and then lord it over them as if they're perfectly pure in themselves. So I love the idea of all of us exercising and working on our vocabulary in this manner. If you drink black coffee or hot tea, I know you've burned your tongue hundreds of times, or you've had to wait 20 minutes for your coffee to cool down, which by that time, your donut or muffin is long gone, and you've missed the joy of pairing that sweet breakfast item with your bitter black coffee. If it sounds like I'm speaking from personal experience, I am. But I've got good news for us. Drink Perfection takes beverages from scalding hot to the perfect temperature, where you can actually appreciate the flavor notes, by the way, in just 20 seconds without watering them down. Learn more at drinkperfection.com. And be sure to check out The Perfector's other application, taking red wine from room temp to wine cellar temperature again in just 20 seconds. Find out more at drinkperfection.com. You also talk about the three C's and that you relate it back to parenting, but I would imagine that these three C's of perfectionism could pretty much cover the gamut. You talk about certainty, control, and compulsion. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. The fuel that that really gets the engine of perfectionism running is mm. fear. And, you know, we're afraid of making mistakes because we don't want to hurt people. We're afraid of looking bad and embarrassed in front of people. We're afraid of shame and regret. Um, so that's what allows for these three C's you mentioned to come into existence. Because if I have fear, then anything I can find to alleviate or to stop the things that cause me fear makes me feel better. So, for example, if I could be certain that when my daughter, who's now just about 15, that when she goes on a date, that in that date, she will be unharmed, that she'll be treated with respect, that nothing will happen to her, and she'll be treated well by this gentleman she's with. If I have that certainty, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed and right. sleep like a baby. I don't even need to stay up for her. Just like if I have certainty that my daughter would sleep through the night when she was a baby, that I'm right. going to just sleep very well. I guess sleep is important <laughs> to me in this, in this topic here. Um, I don't mean for it to be the focus, but you will be relaxed. You will be at ease. You'll be comfortable if you know for certain how things are going to go. 
Now, of course, that's unachievable. We can't have certainty in this world. We don't know the weather, let alone how people are going to treat each other on dates or how children are going to sleep at night when they're babies. But we want it. Whether we can have it or not, Mm -hmm. we still want it. I mean, you could make the argument that the entire development of science is to get us closer to certainty about the world we live in so we can predict, explain, and control the things that maybe threaten our survival and well-being. So what happens in, in parenting or in marriage, too, is that when we feel like we can't um, know for sure how our children are going to do in life, how our marriage will do, we get that, that fear can mm-hmm. come up, especially if we feel responsible. You mentioned a child is really helpless. So I feel responsible right. for my child. I feel responsible for my marriage. Then I'm, I'm the one who has to do something mm-hmm. about it. So we try to get more certainty by ratcheting up our efforts to control. And some of the ways we do that are environmental. So like I will try to control the environment in which my daughter is you know, sleeping or in which she's going on a date. So it can be anything from you need to call me every 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I need yeah. to know where you're going. Um, some parents will put a device on yeah. their phone, the child's phone or the car that will monitor where they're at so they can control and make sure the environment is safe. Um, but some ratchet up the level of control to what we might call coercion mm-hmm. or compulsion, which is I'm going to say you can't go on this date. I'm going to say you can't go <laughs> outside. I'm going to say you can't go and meet anybody anywhere, anytime. And there are unfortunately examples of coercion so yeah. extreme as that. But most of the time, it's more we try to guilt our child into doing what we want or we punish them when they don't do what we want. And often in subtle ways to try to manipulate and coerce their behavior so it alleviates our fear of uncertainty. So those three things come into parenting, but they also come into marriage. Here's here's an irony in that regard. My my wife, um, I will sometimes get frustrated because as a mother, I will see her ratchet up her control and even compulsion of our children. Well, the irony is that I will then in turn try to ratchet up my control and right. coercion of her so that right. she will be less controlling. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I, no one's innocent of this, I think. The moment yeah. you feel responsible for something, someone, and fear comes into your heart, you're going to be strongly tempted towards control and compulsion. Yeah, I do think that there's, there's an underlying fear, whether it's love, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's just friendship. And we don't always identify the fear that's there. We're res- I won't say responding, because yeah. responding takes a little more thought, but we react and we think we're managing this emotion over here, but really the underlying emotion is fear. It is. And I think if we can learn an alternative language of perfection, we'll realize there's an antidote to that. And the antidote to fear is love. If I can love, and I don't mean just my own personal love, which is imperfect and limited, but I think we can access a transcendent kind of love. I don't want to get too spiritual or new agey here, but I have had moments where I have loved beyond my Mm -hmm. own capacity. I think, for example, of when my uh, children were born and the moment they were you know, laid on my wife's chest or put in my arms, I felt a love that was well beyond my own mm-hmm. capacity to love. And in that moment, I had no fear. I would have loved anyone who walked into the room, 
My worst enemy could have walked into the room and I think I would have felt love. I would have said, what are you doing in this room? My wife just gave birth. But I, but I think I could have loved them because there's some transcendent love that kind of seized my heart with the birth of each of my children and, yeah. and in other events that taught me that I can actually love without fear. And I think true love like that is mutually exclusive with fear. You can't have both of them in your heart yeah. at the same time. And when a parent can have that with a child, it's beautiful. When spouses can have it together, it's just amazing. Or partners of any kind, friends. When that happens, it's, it's something is bigger than you. You know, I, I said I'm a relational psychologist. The relationship has a quality to it that is transcendent to the individuals in it. And the fear is also beneath the perfectionism as well. We talked about regret and we talked about shame, but that underlying all of that is still fear. Yeah. It is. I think that's ultimately yeah. what we are talking about. Perfectionism is fear. Yep. Fear of falling short, fear of letting people down, fear of injuring someone, fear that it could have been better if I had done it differently. Yep. A lot of people struggle with that. But the antidote, it's not going to change. The perfection that people, the language I, I would want them to learn, that the book's desiring them to learn is a perfection mm -hmm. of love. And love is achievable. We can have those moments. There's a philosopher named Martin Buber who talks about I-thou relationships, where we have these moments where we are seized by a transcendent love. That is achievable in this life. Flawlessness right. is not, but that kind of tr deep transcendent mm -hmm. love is. And with it, as I said, fear dissipates. And it doesn't yeah. last forever. We have to continue to try to achieve mm -hmm. I-thou connections. But when they come, I, I compare it to like a butterfly that happens to land on your shoulder. You've got to be grateful for it. You've you got to love the beauty of it. But don't put your hand on it and try to keep it on your shoulder forever because yeah, you'll yeah, just yeah. kill it. And the same thing is true with this transcendent love. When it comes, appreciate it, glow in it, but it will leave. And you live again for a moment when it mm -hmm. comes again. And that, to me, is a kind of perfect way of living in love. And I think the other piece that really, again, just keeps coming to mind as you're speaking, and I'm a Christian, so for me, my podcast is meant for everyone, so I don't want to alienate anyone who doesn't have a faith. But to me, even when I talk about my own path and my listeners know my own journey and when I made fear-based decisions, I almost married the wrong person when I was in my 30s because I was scared that here I am, 34, and it's time, and this is a good enough guy, and this will be a good enough relationship, and so forth. There was always fear at the root of that. And when I think about even perfectionism, as we talked about, the fear, if we don't have a faith to lean into, then I don't know what we lean into. Then we lean back into perfectionism, or we lean back into some other way to soothe the fear. I, I know that your your book, you you come from a perspective of faith, but you also want to make this a topic that everyone can benefit from. At the same time, I'm thinking, if someone wants to dig deep and ask me really what kept me, what keeps me now when I have moments of fear, because I have them every day. <laughs> My husband travels every week and he's in an airplane every week. I could lean into that fear yeah. or I lean into that faith that no matter what happens, even if the worst thing that I think could happen, happens, I will be okay because of my faith in God and because that faith in a God that loves me and will provide that love like you're talking about, even in the midst of what seems unfathomable, unthinkable pain and sorrow, that love will still be there. Well, that is 
beautifully said, and I I agree completely. There has to be some transcendence here. I I use the word transcendence because it crosses yes. faith traditions and and even mm-hmm. secular traditions. But I cannot help but be mindful that it is in the Bible where we have the verse that says, perfect love casteth out fear. And I can't be mi- help but be mindful that we have a God who tells us to trust in our relationship with Him within Christianity. And that if you trust in that relationship and you're vulnerable in that relationship, then you will receive that perfect love. You will receive God's love, and then you'll be able to love others with it rather than with your own limited and mm. flawed love. So I do think that that certain religions, and Christianity is the focus I, I emphasize in the book, um, I do think certain religions really do have a, a strong alternative language of perfection available in them. And that makes it easier, I think, to learn the language. But I also think in, in I, I study philosophy and psychology quite a bit, and there are many. I mentioned Martin Buber. Um, he is Jewish by his ethnicity and religion, but he is speaking about something that's accessible to anybody. These I-thou moments of connection where we feel bound up with each other in an intimate and special way where time almost seems to stand still or is sort of irrelevant, and we're able to touch something deep within each other. I mean, this is at the essence of therapy. Carl Rogers, who was the father of humanistic psychotherapy, borrowed from Buber's I-Thou notion to try to talk about how therapist and client can achieve deep, trusting intimacy. So I think the transcendent love is available to anyone, but it takes, um, as Buber says, your will, your desire, and it also takes some kind of grace, some kind of transcendent allowance that facilitates the deep connection. I mean, sometimes I'm hoping to have a wonderful date night with my wife, and it just <laughs> <Yeah>. goes badly. <laughs> you know, We both want it. We both have the will and desire for it, but there's something that just it doesn't click. And other times... There's just a grace that comes and seems to make everything go really well, and we're connecting on all cylinders and feeling each other's you know, vulnerability and being intimate with it, and it's beautiful. And those are the moments, I think, in the alternative language of perfect love, those are the moments that make your life worth living. If someone were to say to you, look back on your life and describe the moments that made your life meaningful, valuable, purposeful, you would most likely describe moments of connection with people, moments where you felt some kind of love that was transcendent to just the everyday love Definitely. you might feel. Absolutely. Dr. Reber, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the program. I've really enjoyed this conversation. There's just a lot here these overarching themes are ones that we all grapple with pretty much on a daily basis. So I know there's going to be some something for everyone in this conversation. So thanks again. Please let my listeners know where they can find you if they want to join in with what you're doing with social media and your Weakness Wednesday, is it? Yeah, if they want to, right. uh, hashtag Weakness Wednesdays is um, the way to access that. We also have um, a Facebook and Instagram presence. If you put in the Paradox of Perfection or Paradox of Perfection book, you can find all of those um, sources through a, through a Google search or something. 
Um, but it has been for me just a, a real pleasure to talk with you. And my hope is the reason for writing this book is to just provide a little hope and a little relief and a recognition that not only do we not have to be flawless, we don't even have to pursue flawlessness to still have a healthy, flourishing, Indeed. and meaningful life. I think you absolutely achieved that through the book, having read it. So again, thank you for writing it and thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. The love and life hack for this week is watch your language. Dr. Reber reminds us to be very careful of speaking the language of perfection as flawlessness. Thanks for joining us this week. And a special thank you to everyone who's subscribing to the podcast, reviewing episodes, and rating episodes. It makes a huge difference. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.